0: I had felt for a long time that compliance is being treated, has been treated as this exclusively legal, regulatory, enforcement-related exercise, oftentimes led by lawyers, when in fact, compliance is a deeply human discipline. We're talking about people who are subject to the policies and procedures and program that we put in place. We are talking about behavior about shaping human behavior through those policies, those procedures, those trainings, and the programs that we put in place. And we're talking, especially today and over the course of the past decade or so, we're talking a lot about culture. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello,
1: everyone. This is Tom Fox, and back for another episode. And today you're in for a real treat because I have Zach Coselia. Zach is with Ropes and Gray Insights Labs, one of the most unique parts of a law firm, I guess, if I can put it that way, that has, yeah. I've seen in some time. So, Zach, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today.
0: Of course. Thanks, Tom. It's so good to spend some time with you this morning and so good to talk to all your listeners.
1: So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background, Zach?
0: Of course. So I am a lawyer, and I started on a fairly traditional path working in another big law firm. Uh, I spent the better part of the first decade of my career at DLA Piper. I was a litigator and investigator, and I did a lot of work at that time in the pharmaceutical industry, healthcare and life sciences, and a lot of work specifically for Pfizer. And so after working at DLA Piper for many years, I went in house, I went to one of my clients to be the head of investigations in Asia Pacific for Pfizer. And during that time I lived and worked in Beijing for a number of years, which has an expiration date and came back to the US. I led and built Pfizer's global compliance analytics, global compliance monitoring and its digital compliance office. And after doing that for several years, I kind of looked around and I thought, what do I want to do next in my career? And I had this kind of nutty idea to build a analytics and behavioral science consultancy within a law firm. And that's where we are today. So you've told us a little bit about the type of legal work you
1: focused on in private practice. And it does sound, I don't want to say traditional, but well within the confines of what most people might expect from a law firm. Were you doing And a corruption or other white collar defense investigations when you were with DLA
0: Piper? Yeah, when I was at DLA Piper, I actually had sort of an interesting mix of a practice. About half of my practice was more traditional commercial litigation, and the other half of my practice was international risk work, primarily focused on investigations and proactive compliance. A lot of that was focused on anti-bribery and corruption, but not exclusively.
1: My path was that I was a trial lawyer, and then I moved in-house to a client, but not in the litigation world, for Halliburton in the energy services space. And I had worked for Halliburton for 15 years. I thought I understood Halliburton. And when I got in-house, I realized I knew nothing about the company. <laughs> I knew nothing about the practice of law in-house or any of those things. Was that your experience when you moved to Pfizer in-house, or was it different?
0: There were definitely elements of it that were similar. I think that I prided myself as an outside lawyer. I prided myself on really knowing my client, but I think that there are things that you don't know. There are things that you learn once you're actually in-house doing it. I was doing a lot of work once I came in-house that I was doing when I was outside counsel, so there was some amount of predictability to it. But being an in-house lawyer was not what I expected it to be. It was very different. And I think a lot of the reason that it was different for me at least was because right away I was living in another country, which was unusual and somewhat unsettling just because you're so far away from home. A big part of that was just managing the time zones. I was never where someone wanted me to be or where I wanted to be at the moment where I needed to be there. I was either too far ahead or too far behind. And I was also living in a country where I didn't speak the language well. And so that obviously comes with a whole host of additionally unsettling realities. But the work itself didn't feel that different. Getting to know the people and the personalities as an in-house person, as opposed to an outside lawyer, was definitely different. And I learned a lot. A lot of the work that I did in those initial years was just about relationship building and trying to figure out the organization in a way that you just simply couldn't as an outside lawyer.
1: I guess my biggest aha was possibly like many lawyers in private practice, I looked down on in-house lawyers as that you were in-house simply because you couldn't make it at a firm. When I got in-house, what I realized was they were playing chess while I've been playing checkers. And hmm. they were playing chess because... They were dealing with U.S. We were a U.S. company, of course. So we had U.S. law, we had Texas law, we had international law because we were doing business all over the world. And then we had three or four levels of company law, policies and procedures, business practice, et cetera. And I likened it to five level chess. And so I found the intellectually, the sophistication in-house was actually greater than being litigator. And I don't know, once again, if that was similar yeah, to your I- experience or not.
0: I fully agree with that. And I think that there's that additional layer that I was sort of hinting at too of the personalities and the politics. You can somewhat insulate yourself from a lot of that or your client insulates you from a lot of that when you are the outside lawyer. But once you're in-house, you're both doing those things that a lawyer does, whether you're in-house or outside, but you're also managing a complex organization with personalities and people in ways that you just simply, I simply didn't as an outside lawyer, and that added a whole nother dimension to the work. And managing those relations, your colleagues, they are clients, you are colleagues, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're your boss. There's a whole host of complexities that come with the relationships internally that it's very different than when you're just a big firm lawyer.
1: Can I now turn to, after you left China and the investigative work, your work in-house, around data analytics and helping to create that tool or asset or Pfizer, how did that come about and what was your role in creating it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was right there at the very beginning as we were kind of realizing the opportunity that a more data-driven program could provide. And it really started for me during my time in China. You know, When I was in China, I was managing a complex docket. I was dealing with a lot of cases, with a lot of data, and thinking, well, there sort of has to be a better way to do this. Rather than looking at things one-off, how could we use data to amplify our efforts? How could we use data to understand trends? How could we use data to ultimately improve our investigative work? And then eventually, once I kind of got outside of the investigations function, how could we do all of those things in ways that would promote a better, stronger program? So this dates back to 2015, at a time when it doesn't seem that long ago, but In the world of compliance, it actually is a pretty long time ago. And in the world of data analytics for compliance, you're really kind of at the beginning. So we were asking these questions about how could we do this better? How could we bring more value? How could we drive more efficiencies? How could we partner with folks across the organization? For example, corporate audit who had interest in maybe doing things more remotely. Instead of looking at things in isolation, how could we use data to potentially understand patterns of behaviors across an entire subset of people or across an entire subsidiary or geography or across the entire organization. So from asking these questions, it ultimately led us to realize a couple of things. One, we needed to make some additional investments in technology if we were going to be able to do this successfully. Two, we needed to make investments in human capital. We needed different skill sets on the team if we were going to do this successfully. And three, we needed to take an intentional approach to all of this, meaning it wasn't just going to be a strategy that finds its way onto the list of annual goals and objectives. We were going to build a function. We were going to build a real coalition across the organization to do this and to do it right. And I was right there. I mean, I felt very strongly about this in part because I was inspired by the possibilities for my time in China.
1: Did that scope or enthusiasm for the project, did that come literally from the top of the organization? Did it come from the CCO or, or perhaps others?
0: Yes, is the answer to that question. Yes, our CCO was certainly behind this idea from the very beginning. And as were people sort of up and down the chain. I think the truth is very few people then and truthfully, very few people now fully appreciate what it means to build an analytics capability within a compliance department. I think there are a lot of misconceptions. I think that there's a lot of talk that maybe doesn't live up to the lived reality of many compliance departments. So while it may not have been full appreciation of the end vision by people up and down the line back then, the concepts certainly were resonating and folks were invested in figuring it out and giving this a try.
1: You spoke about both uh, software or the product approach, but you also spoke about human capital and the need for different disciplines. Could you maybe uh, spend a little more time talking about The different disciplines that you found were needed within this overall data analytics approach?
0: Of course. I mean, look, I am a lawyer and I like to think that I'm more than a lawyer because I've been doing this work for many years, but my training is still as a lawyer. And many compliance departments are made up of folks with a very similar pedigree, a very similar background, very similar education to me. They are lawyers. And if they're not lawyers, they're risk professionals, folks who have spent time in HR, in corporate audit, in finance. And there's sort of a set of skills, whether it's legal or not, that you typically see in a legal department. And I very much believe at the beginning of this analytics journey, if we were going to do it right, we really needed to bring in people who have experience building business analytic capabilities. We needed people who have done this work in other areas to be able to come in and help us figure out how to do this within compliance. There's a lot of talk in this space about technology and certainly technology plays a role, but I feel like that technology is only going to get us so far if we don't understand some of the basics, if we can't build a strategy. And so I thought we need to build a team that reflects that. So the team that I built at Pfizer was made up of and led by, and to this day is still led by an engineer, an incredibly talented and... Both mathematically and analytically minded, but also business-minded woman named Tara Palish. I felt like we needed to bring in data scientists. We needed to bring in visualization experts. we needed to bring in and we needed to bring in folks who had this range of capabilities so that we knew what it was that we needed to build, rather than sort of folks who didn't fully understand it, trying to build something that they don't fully understand. And so what we ultimately did, what I ultimately did, was lead a team that merged deep subject matter expertise of compliance with deep subject matter expertise of data analytics.
1: Now I'd now like to move to, or transition over to your move to Ropes & Gray. What led you to Ropes and & Gray? And of course, what led to starting the Insights Lab?
0: Well, I was at Pfizer. Even dating back to my time in China, which at this point was 10 years ago, I began to shape a point of view that very much shapes and powers the lab that I now lead at Robes and Gray. And that point of view began with, honestly, a bit of frustration with compliance as a discipline. I had felt for a long time that compliance is being treated, has been treated as this exclusively legal. Regulatory enforcement related exercise, oftentimes led by lawyers, when in fact compliance is a deeply human discipline. We're talking about people who are subject to the policies and procedures and program that we put in place. We are talking about behavior, about shaping human behavior through those policies, those procedures, those trainings, and the programs that we put in place. And we're talking, especially today, And over the course of the past decade or so, we're talking a lot about culture. And so much as I looked at the analytics opportunity within compliance, I also looked to the sort of human and psychological component and opportunity within compliance. And so when I was at Pfizer, I worked with a lot of law firms and got terrific world-class legal advice, including from firms like Robes and Gray. You know, I was able to get a multidisciplinary team when I needed it from consultants. But I thought, why can't we have all of this under one roof? And as I was looking around, I actually felt like there was an opportunity. There was a service offering that I felt like I needed, which was a mixture of the law, analytics, behavioral science, and creativity that didn't live under one roof anywhere. And so I thought, look, there's a reason for this. Either no one's thought of it, or it's a terrible idea. So I decided to put my hypothesis to the test and envision this idea of a consultancy, an analytics, behavioral science, and creative consultancy that lived within the walls of a global law firm. And I just started pounding the pavement and using my law firm contacts to see if anyone was interested in going on the journey of building that with me. And Ropes & Gray ultimately was.
1: So similar to Pfizer, there had to be at least, if not enthusiasm, some interest in ropes and gray in your approach. And I have been a managing partner. I've been a partner. And I know how difficult it is for law firms to not only embrace, but even try something new sometimes. It strikes me in listening to this that you had to have, once again, really the top of the firm supporting your efforts to do this. Would that be a fair assessment?
0: Yes, no question. I think I have a bit of a skill of getting people excited about things that they may not fully understand. It's something I think I've done throughout my career, both in terms of building the program that we built at Pfizer and building the lab here at Ropes & Gray. It started, though, with my decade-plus-long friendship and collaboration with a partner here at Ropes & Gray named Amanda Rod, who is the co-founder of R&G Insights Lab. With me, Amanda is a partner in our London office. She also co-leads our any corruption and international risk practice. Amanda and I have known each other for a long time and our relationship goes back actually to work that we both did for Pfizer when we were fairly young lawyers. And we've stayed in touch over the years. And so she was experimenting with behavioral science in the legal world, in her practice. I was doing the work that I was doing, bringing creativity, behavioral science analytics into my work at Pfizer. And our friendship ultimately led us to have this meeting of the minds where we were like, let's see if maybe this idea that we could do it together. And maybe that, well, you know, I said I was starting to pound the pavement using my law from context. Well, Amanda was at the very top of that list. So it started there with this long friendship and relationship with Amanda, but you are 100% right. We were able to make this happen because we had buy-in, we have buy-in support and investment at the highest levels of the organization. And the creation of the lab really wouldn't have happened without the leadership mentorship and support of our managing partner that's really where it began and that's where it ended and i should also note this all happened right in the heart of covid so we did our first pitch to the managing partner here i think in march of 2020 <laughs> and several weeks later i said to amanda i was like wow i mean timing just really timing is not our friend this is too bad. I don't think this will happen now. And credit to Ropes and Gray's forward-thinking nature and their commitment and belief in this idea that the lab launched that July.
1: Could you tell us a little bit about the evolution in your either thinking or realization of the behavioral science aspect of your work at Pfizer and then in the lab? Was it an aha moment or was it really a series of Seeing things like relationships and how the relationship within a company might impact the way a company does business, or was it perhaps something else?
0: Yeah, it was a lot of things. I think for me, it began back in my time in China, but I'm certain at that time I wouldn't have been able to describe it as behavioral science or cultural psychology or behavioral economics or human centered design. I I didn't have the vocabulary for any of those things when I first began to shaped this point of view but it definitely went back to my time in china and to kind of echo what i said before i mean going there was at times unsettling i had worked in china for years before and traveled there dozens and dozens of time and really had become a bit of an expert on anti-corruption compliance in china so it wasn't like i was a complete fish out of water but being there on the ground living there experiencing it in a very different way And feeling the tension, most importantly, feeling the tension between a very local business run by locals and a compliance program that was being cascaded down from New York. There was cultural tension there that was palpable and that was meaningful and that if we didn't acknowledge and respond to it, we might very well fail when it comes to building an effective compliance program. And so that was the first flavor for me of appreciating that this isn't just about the rules. This isn't just about the law. This isn't just about the enforcement environment and the regulatory landscape in which we're operating. This is really about human things that we don't often talk about when it comes to compliance. And then when I came back to the US and started doing the analytics program, I really began to see that Building an analytics program that was only going to look at rules seemed like short-sighted. With all of the data we had available to us, we have this opportunity to understand human behavior in ways that go beyond just the rules. I became very interested in that. And then as we started building our digital compliance office, I really began to appreciate the power of human-centered design, and thinking about not only how that might apply in the context of building new technologies or rolling out new technologies, but also how that same thinking could apply in the way that we roll out our policies, our procedures, our communications, the way in which we build a compliance program. Why don't we engage with people? Why don't we amplify their voices? Why don't we build for them in the ways that we build computer mouse or a software. And so all of these things together really over time were shaping the point of view. And then finally, I think at some point three and a half, four years ago, I really started putting it all together and thinking there's there's a business here.
1: So what are some of the non-legal disciplines in the insight labs that you either have access to or are part of your team?
0: We have a lot. I mean that's the promise of the lab. We definitely still have lawyers, but we also have in Hui Chen, who you know, a Lawyer who's also an ethics expert and who has both worked in private practice as such, but also been a compliance counsel at the Department of Justice. We have Megan Zweibel, who is also a lawyer, but who has spent the better part of the past decade of her career as a journalist and a storyteller. We have David Yanofsky, who is not a lawyer, who has spent his entire career as a data journalist. So he really leads up a lot of our analytics capabilities within the lab. And among his varied set of skills, which range from the statistical and the mathematical, he also is just a genius at telling visual stories using data in ways that people can actually understand. So when you see kind of data-driven narratives or visuals in the news articles that you're reading, people like David are the ones who have put stuff like that together. We have Natish Upadia who did practice law, but then who went back to school and got a degree in behavioral science from the London School of Economics and who also led an innovation team at another law firm focusing on kind of the principles of human-centered design and how behavioral science can play a role in the legal profession. We have Caitlin Handron, Dr. Caitlin Handron, who got her PhD at Stanford in cultural psychology, who is not a lawyer, who focuses on how we can take a more intentional, more thoughtful approach to measuring and shaping culture and who's dedicated much of her career to doing just that. So there's just a flavor of some of the folks and skills that we have within the lab.
1: Where do you hope to take the Insights Lab?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, we already have taken it to places that I'd not fully appreciated when we came up with the idea. You know, we started as a compliance consultancy because that's what I knew. And we have very much already expanded. So we focus on compliance, ethics, and risk as one of the key areas. But we also now are focusing on organizational culture more generally as a subset of that. We also do quite a bit of work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. A lot of that is coming off Caitlin, Dr. Handren's expertise as someone who has studied human bias. And there's been a lot of opportunity for us there. And we've also begun to expand and actually done quite a bit of work in the ESG and the environmental social governance space with our world-class ESG legal team. My hope is just to continue to build each of those verticals, to continue to fulfill the promise of a multidisciplinary team and the impact that it can have on the practice of law to grow. And I really do believe that this lab, this concept can be a... A very large, powerful business, not only for Ropes and Gray, but in shaping the future of legal work.
1: And that really leads me to the next question is, do you see this type of service offering or adjunct as something that law firms will embrace five,
0: maybe 10 years down the road? Yeah, I think we're already seeing it. I do. I think that we remain the only true analytics and behavioral science consultancy within an elite law firm. But there are plenty of firms that are seeing the value of a multidisciplinary team and are creating sort of their own consulting groups. I do think that the legal profession is going to change. And I think that we are on the leading edge of that. The problem is the legal profession is going to change very, very slowly, because that's just sort of our MO. But there's this really wonderful book called The Behavioral Code, by legal scholars Benjamin Van Roy and Adam Fine that I just read recently. And it just really stuck with me, in part because they talk toward the end of the book about the difference or the comparisons between the legal profession and the medical profession and talk about how it wasn't actually that long ago that the medical profession was not a data-driven scientific exercise. They were responding to things with bloodletting rather than really doing clinical studies and collecting data to help us understand how to actually treat human ailments. And in some ways, that's kind of where I feel like the legal profession is today. One of the phrases that sticks out to me from their book that just resonates in my mind every day is that one of the most, I'm paraphrasing here, but that one of the most powerful behavioral codes that exists in human existence are our legal codes. And yet they're built by, as they say, behavioral novices. And I think that there's a huge opportunity for us to embrace behavioral science, to embrace a more scientific point of view, to embrace the world of data in ways that actually advance our profession. It didn't happen in the medical profession overnight. It's certainly not going to happen in the legal profession overnight. But I do think that having the humility to acknowledge that other disciplines might actually be able to help us make the legal profession stronger would be to the benefit of the profession itself.
1: Uh, Let me change the focus just a little bit because you now have a podcast. I do. And uh, you and Wei Chen started a podcast. Could you tell us the name of the podcast, what it's about and where you hope to perhaps take it?
0: Yes. So the podcast is called There Has to Be a Better Way? Question mark. We call it for short, The Better Way Podcast, again, with the question mark. The question mark I emphasize because we don't have all the better ways. It is a innovation podcast, maybe better said, it's a curiosity podcast where we are kind of going on a journey of identifying better ways and people who are identifying and finding their own better ways to a range of organizational challenges. We will talk a lot about compliance, ethics, and risk, particularly at the outset of the series, but we will also talk about things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and organizational culture, and just a range of organizational challenges that are demanding better ways because the same old status quo ways just haven't really been working. You can find our podcast on wherever you find your favorite podcasts, on Apple, Google, Spotify, et cetera. We just hope I want people to listen and I just want to continue the journey. It's been really fun for us to both get to know each other a little bit better and to talk about some of our better ways, but also to bring in some really exciting guests who are doing interesting and important work and who are like us just trying to address our own frustration with the status quo by actually looking for a better way to do things.
1: Well, Zach, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, Ropes & Gray Insight Lab, or the law firm, what would be the best place or places for them to go?
0: To find me, please link up with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find, Zachary Kosalia. There aren't a lot of Zachary Kosalias in the world, so please check me out there. You can find more information about RNG Insights Lab at our website, which is www.ropesgray.com RG Insights Lab. And then, of course, you can check out the Better Way podcast by going to our website or, as I said, finding it wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google or Spotify. Zach, I
1: really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me and I look forward to continuing this conversation. Awesome.
0: Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everybody. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.